so thank you for that, and, and, and thank you for, for being here. I think that, as you said, it's a, it's a very important topic. It's a very important discussion. And uh, I have been uh, discussing this for almost 25 years now. I, I wrote about the issue of political Islam and Islamism and uh, trying to get a sense of what and how we have to understand the history of uh, these uh, ideologies and not only one, because I will explain uh, how I think we have to tackle the issue, which is a complex one. It's not as simple as it is uh, uh, presented in, uh, uh, in the media and even sometimes, unfortunately, within academia. And uh, my starting point here is uh, uh, an introduction, four main points, just to start with the discussion about uh, political Islam or Islamism. And uh, as you know, the problem that we have with political Islam and Islamism is the question of definition. It's how, what are we talking about exactly? And about whom? And uh, to whom are we referring when we speak about Islamists and political Islam? And uh, as we need to get this, and, and this is also uh, done by all the political scientists and the analysis that are working on the topic from very old uh, uh, commentators. If you go up to, uh, for example, Edouard Said, uh, when he was dealing with uh, Islamists or uh, Bernard Lewis, or today uh, Esposito, François Burga, uh, uh, Olivier uh, Roy, or others who are working about, uh, on, on that topic, the starting point is to, try to start to define what we are talking about. And mainly, I would say that uh, I disagreed with many of the definitions that we had and saying, let us come to what are the common grounds that we had at the very beginning of political Islam to understand what we are talking about now. And I keep on repeating, and this is something that I'm also teaching here uh, in this university, is the four main features that we have when we come back to the history of the origin of political Islam is coming back to the Quran as something which is a resistance to uh, uh, the Western colonization. So. Refer the, the main reference are the Quran and the, the, the prophetic tradition and everything which has to do with the Islamic history. The second is something which was essential in everything, and this is why it was perceived by some as a very modern movement, is the notion of ishtihad, is this uh, uh, individual or collective uh, reasoning when the text is silent, when the text is open for interpretation. All the Islamists, starting from the precursors, Al-Avrani and Abdu, were referring to this notion that we need an ishtihad to be able to uh, <coughs> tackle the challenges of our time. Second is this very notion that what is necessary in a Muslim-majority country is the implementation of the, legal, the Islamic legal framework. And the Islamic legal framework, known in the, 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 the rhetoric of the Islamists as sharia, implementing sharia, tatbiq sharia as being something which is essential, many different understandings of Sharia, but still Sharia is a reference. And as the final goal of the whole thing, and for some it was a means, and for others it was a goal, is uh, the Islamic State. The Islamic State in the first understanding in the beginning of the, 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 the 20th century, not the uh, Islamic State that we are talking about now in northern uh, Iraq and Syria. Having said that, if you look at all, with all these four main features that are common to all the political, the Islamist trends, what is important, and this is why we have to be clear, that there is many Islamist trends, and you have from the reformist and the legalist, that was the starting point of the Muslim Brotherhood up to the Nahda today in Tunisia, or the Muslim Brotherhood today, or uh, uh, even as uh, far as what we have in Turkey, if we still consider them within the uh, Islamist paradigm, you have the legalist and the reformist trend, very much referring to uh, Lishtihad, and then at the same time being legalist and trying to work within the legal framework. You have also literalist and dogmatic. And I know that it's not common in our discussion today, and especially in the media, for example, 
to uh, speak about uh, uh, Islamists when it comes to the Salafi, if it's, the, if it's not about the Salafi jihadists. But still, if you look at the four main features that I just referred to, if you look at Saudi Arabia, for example, it's clearly a position where the state system is based on a clear understanding that this is Islamic. The legal framework is about Sharia. Reference to Islam, it's everywhere. And and this is where there is that could be a problem. Ishtihad is not very much promoted, but still it's a reference that Islam is the reference. But we are not talking about Islamists when we talk about Saudi Arabia. You have to ask yourself why in the media coverage Saudi Arabia is not called an Islamist state. Why? I know why, but maybe you have. Uh, uh, <laughs> that's between you and me. Anyway, so that's a very important point because uh, uh, words and terminology matters in the whole discussion, but this is why we have literalist and dogmatic. If you look at what is happening now in Iraq and in Syria, of course the link between who are the Islamists is very important because it's not only coming from the Salafi trend where uh, there is apolitical uh, Salafism that we have today in the uh, Gulf states and mainly in Saudi Arabia. The link here, it's also important. Now you also have uh, violent extremists. Uh, Salafi, and this is what we have when it comes to Pokor Haram, when it comes to Al-Qaeda, when it comes to the global jihad theory about we try to liberate ourselves at the national level, now it has to be a global one. We are going to be free in Egypt if we free ourselves by targeting uh, Washington, for example. All this rhetoric that we had coming from Al-Qaeda, and then Pokor Haram, and then what we have now, Daesh and the uh, Islamic State, making it a global struggle uh, in this. If now we come and we say, when we speak about political Islam, all these people are all the same. And if they are non-violent, in fact, it's a strategy for the people who are violent. And if they are violent, this is the true dimension. I think that this is not scientific, not objective, and not politically uh, efficient. I think that we need to deal with political Islam uh, in a way where we are differentiating the different trends and understanding that they are not all the same. Willing it or not, like it or not. I'm not talking here about liking or not liking. I'm trying to understand the phenomenon and, and understanding what are the challenges. We also have to deal with this reality when they are in charge and where they are in opposition. The reality is quite different when they are, for example, as they are now in many countries uh, in opposition or where they were in charge in Egypt recently or in Morocco today or even in Turkey or even, of course, in Iran. This also, it's important, we have to differentiate in our analysis uh, between those who are in charge or are running a country and those who are in opposition uh, up to, for example, what is happening and what happened in Gaza, it's also something that has to be uh, studied. Why? Because the credibility of the, the, the Islamists was very much questioned when they were in charge by translating if yes or not they were doing what they were uh, saying. For example, a very important example is that many people, when they were to read uh, Hassan al-Turabi in Sudan, what he was bringing to the Islamic reference was very interesting about women, about freedom, about, but then he was in charge and the story was quite different. So we'll see have here to deal with uh, these uh, dimensions. This is the first point, a long point, but this is the starting point. I, I don't want to start uh, an academic discussion by starting with confusing, not knowing what we are going to talk about. Mainly my discussion today is about the legalist reformist trend connected to all the others, but I'm connecting, I'm, I'm trying to focus on this for this discussion uh, for the time that I have today. The second thing that I want to highlight here is that all this business and all these discussions that we have today and this rhetoric that political Islam is dead, I think that's just wrong. It is not dead, it's still there. This is the reality in all these different forms and uh, uh, with all these different uh, realities. What we are witnessing clearly in every country, crossing the board, there is a very deep crisis in political Islam and Islamists. They are facing crisis. The first uh, um, uh, um, uh, organization that is facing these crises, not only one, but many crises, uh, are the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt after what happened. And in fact, 
to uh, be clear on this, it's not only after what happened. The crisis started much before. And even uh, we can say that over the last 20 years, if you study what happened within the Muslim Brotherhood, these are deep crises about credential, about legitimacy, and about division even. And then this was increased, of course, just before the so-called revolution. I never called it a revolution, just, okay, that's another story. But uh, 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 before the revolution, during the revolution, and then after uh, what I call a coup d'etat, whatever is said by uh, Obama, anyway. So uh, this, is the second, this is the second point, and uh, I am focusing on the legalist reformists, because I think that this is the mainstream, and, big, and, and this is why maybe the crisis is the, the deepest, the deepest crisis that we have, and this is why we can deal with the, um, uh, um, the challenges. The second thing that I wanted to say is I don't want to extract political Islam or Islamism from the surrounding, what is happening in the Muslim majority countries. And we have to be clear that the secularists are facing a crisis exactly of the same type that the Islamists. In fact, crises are crossing the board. And if you look at what happened just after uh, the uprisings in Egypt or even in Tunisia today, and if you look at what is happening in Libya, if you look at what is happening uh, in Morocco, the, the, the only thing that we can uh, uh, conclude is they are all facing a political crisis. So this crisis is not only Islamist versus very clear project for the secularists. No, they are all now facing uh, a crisis. And at the same time, the only thing that was saving both for a while is that the justification that they were there because the other was the opponent. They were the enemies from within. So for example, secularists saying we are legitimate because we are liberal and we are coming with democracy versus the Islamists that were backward and, and, and not uh, uh, proposing any uh, modern state and any uh, modern uh, project. On the other side, the Islam is saying, we are the guardian of the tradition, you are westernized, we are colonizing us, so it's a polarization that is mutual justification without clear political project. So the crisis is crossing the board. And I, I think that this is also something that it's important in our discussion, because when you, you talk to some leaders facing the Islamist and political Islam, you, you, you wonder what is really the project except then attacking the Islamists by saying these people are dangerous, which also is the, the case with some dictators saying better us than them, so demonizing the opposition by saying, you better deal with us, which is also what we heard for so many years uh, uh, in uh, Muslim majority countries and in the Middle East. So the, the, the thing that I wanted to, to uh, uh, say here is to come to what are the challenges and the first, the first part of my talk will be about uh, what it was and in which way some for example, in what you have with Bayat or with Olivier Roy and with Gilles Kepel saying uh, this is the end of uh, political Islam, it's also to compare what we have today with what was at the origin of the project. And like it or not, once again, it's not a question of uh, 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 supporting or not. It's try to try to understand what was the project at the beginning. And the project at the beginning was quite clear. The uh, political Islam started, and as I said, the precursors, Al-Avran and Abdu, had something in mind which was quite clear. Coming back to Islam to get rid of the British and the French colonization in the region. So it was with Nahda, coming back with the Arabic culture, the Islamic reference, to liberate ourselves from the new imposition coming from the British and from the French. So it was a liberating process. So coming back to Islam had something which was very clear. It was at that time pan-Islamism, which is we need to go with all the countries, and you remember maybe that Al-Avrani was traveling around from Turkey, Egypt, all the countries saying, now it's time we come together. This was supported by Abdu until he was, after this, the Mufti of Egypt. And then Muhammad Iqbal, Muhammad Iqbal in the 40s, in the 50s, the, 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 the mind that he had is say, we have to stop being nationalist and come together. So the resistance to the Western colonization was mainly transnational resistance, or pan-Islamism. 
This was one. The second is, as I said, uh, uh, coming back to the Islamic references and understanding Sharia as everything which is, was not only legal at that time, and it became legal with the, 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 the translation within the Muslim Brotherhood uh, in the 40s and the 50s, even the, the, the late 30s, the 40s and the 50s. So here, uh, the point was resisting, liberating, and straight away the understanding at that point, even though they had this understanding, the Muslim Brotherhood, that the movement should be transnational, and very, from the very uh, beginning, in the 20s and the 30s, they started having uh, transnational collaboration with Algeria, with Libya, with Syria, with Yemen, with uh, Pakistan. This was, from the very beginning, the, 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 the translation of a resistant movement. Uh, was also uh, trying to resist the westernization. So once again, remember what uh, even in Kitab al-Tawheed, Muhammad Abdu was saying, our struggle is not only a political struggle, is a cultural struggle, is a religious struggle, and we have to liberate ourselves from this imposition. In all this, in the transnational understanding, the state was understood as a means to achieve something which was higher than that, which was, in fact, a project based on references, cultural resistance, political resistance, and transnational liberation. Once again, very conservative, coming back to very strict uh, uh, Islamic interpretation. This was clear for crossing the board, not with Muhammad Abdu and not with uh, Rashid Rida, but in, in the social uh, dimension, it's quite clear that the Muslim Brotherhood were very conservative in the way they were translating this spiritual and cultural resistance to the West. So this was the understanding of this crossing the board uh, and, and, and transnational resistance. The point is that if you look at what is happening now and you try to understand how the rhetoric has evolved, why the world has changed rather dramatically, you can see that here are the first challenges and the first shortcomings. So what I uh, um, want to highlight here is that uh, uh, when you listen to the discourse that you have now coming from the Muslim Brotherhood and Nahda, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the Islamist movements all over the, the Middle East, you will see that uh, once again, what they are highlighting is some of the points that were there at the very beginning of the, the, the movement in the 40s and the 50s. So for example, uh, if you come to, uh, uh, to look at uh, um, the whole political uh, understanding, it's as if globalization and the economic uh, global system and the cultural reality and the educational system, nothing has changed. The only thing which is important is coming back to Sharia and the Islamic reference. And this is where I would say is the first challenge that political Islam uh, uh, has to face. Uh, when it comes to uh, the very understanding of uh, the Islamic reference. First, what is still there facing the world is a very defensive way of dealing with the whole political, economic, and cultural issue. So in fact, is a, a reading of the scriptural sources which is not a creative and visionary one, very much a re reactionary one, resisting to the West and resisting to the other. So, for example, when you look at uh, uh, the way they are dealing with the Islamic reference, and I, I want you to understand this, which is it has an impact, a, a, a huge impact on the Muslim mindset, even with non-Islamists. It's the way you, you deal with the Islamic reference. And the way you deal with the Islamic reference, it's mainly here what is said, and the way it was said is uh, the, the, the Islamic reference is used as we are the guardian of the Islamic reference, and we have to struggle against the enemies within and the enemies outside. So the Islamic reference, in political terms, it's uh, very much uh, uh, read in a way which, where you read it as uh, uh, a frame of reference which is on the defensive, resisting about on everything which is coming from the West. But resisting about what is coming from the West or what's coming from the enemies or the secular means also something which is important. Because no one can deny 
that in the way they were producing thoughts and producing, for example, and understanding the Islamic sources, no one can deny that they were using ishtihad. The problem is the way you deal with the scriptural sources when your, your obsession is resisting to the domination of the, 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 uh, of the other. So the point here that reading the scriptural sources only in resisting political terms is distorting the very essence of the Islamic reference within the society, much more as uh, something which is a, 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 a legal framework that we have to, to promote. And this is the second point as well. If, we, if you look at uh, uh, what was produced by uh, the Islamists in legal terms, once again, no one can deny the fact that ishtihad was a reality in what they were producing, coming with new understanding of the legal framework. But once again, the way you deal with the legal framework <coughs> It, it depends on the way you are dealing with your goals. If the legal framework is we are the guardian of morality or the legal Islamic framework, once again, it's a defensive legal approach. So the activist legal production, it's a very defensive, on the defensive mode. And by definition, when you are under defensive, defensive mode, what is going to be the first uh, uh, translation, it's a very conservative moral framework that you have, very much on the defensive towards the, not only the West, but any means that could in fact, or is perceived as undermining the Islamic legal framework. And the only fact that, you know, I have a problem with, with uh, something which is essential in the Islamic history, is the central role of fiqh in the Islamic tradition. It's central. The fiqh, it's the legal uh, Islamic uh, law and jurisprudence. Islamic law and jurisprudence is very essential, but it should be perceived as a means to something which is a, a higher goal. If at the end, for political reasons, your legal framework becomes the only reference and you are making a society Islamic because you are implementing the Islamic law, literally always a kind of adaptive ishtihad, that's the problem. If you look at the rhetoric coming from the Islamists today, this is what we have, trying to add some legal, and this obsession about this discussion, should we refer uh, to Sharia in the Constitution as being the only, the exclusive, or one of the, 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 the sources. And this reference is also something which, in fact, in the legal framework, it's translating a mindset which is very much on the defensive. Now, having said that, ishtihad, once again, when you are in the field of political Islam, ishtihad, it's, you know, all the scholars, and this is not new, it started in the 13th century and even before, within the Islamic tradition, ishtihad, if you read Muhammad Iqbal is saying, ishtihad, this individual reasoning, when the, 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 the texts are silent, are open to interpretation, are helping the Muslims to face the challenges of their time. Once again, but there are two types of ishtihad. There is an ishtihad where you have goals and ends and a vision, which is a creative ishtihad, understanding that your rules and the legal framework is a means to a higher goal. But if ishtihad, once again, it's only to try to adapt yourself, this is what you have. Look at what happened over the last 20 years. 25 years ago, the concept of democracy was not used by the, the, the Islamists and the legalists, and even the, the, the Muslim Brotherhood were not using this. They were using the concept of shura. And at the end, they are using ishtihad to come to uh, uh, understanding that at the end, it might be that democracy is a, a concept that we can use. The question is, are we talking about the structure of democracy, the spirit, the, the understanding of what the democracy is all about, or are we just changing the words in the name of ishtihad by adapting to what should be the reality? For example, even in the, the discussion about the Islamic State, what we have today coming from the Muslim Brotherhood is to say, no, we are not talking about an Islamic State, we are talking about a civil state with Islamic reference. Dawla to Islamiyya, that marja'iyya, meaning our reference are Islamic. What does it mean exactly? Which type of, is it an ishtihad working on the sources or just adapting to the 
rhetoric or adapting to the terminology that should be used in order to do what, in fact, which is one of the challenges, is to be acknowledged as a potential political power. Acknowledged by whom? Mainly by the West and, by, and, and within the society. So here, this ishtihad that we have uh, also is problematic, but this has an impact in, on all the Islamic tradition. Who are today the scholars in the Muslim majority countries that are able now to uh, take a distance from this type of ishtihad, trying to show that we can adapt to the situation and think about a project that is beyond the reduced political framework. That's the, the, the ishtihad that is coming from politics and from political uh, uh, pressure, it's always to adapt and to try to change and using this as this is the ishtihad that is helping us to reform. But once again, it's uh, uh, an adaptational reform. This is also what something that I was uh, talking about in, uh, in the book Radical Reform by saying this, in fact, it's, a, it's very deep. It's a problem. It's a deep challenge is in which way uh, every time you, you speak about, uh, okay, what is new in what you are saying is that the ishtihad is also, it's always coming with new slogans and new way of translating something which has not a clear substance as to the political project. And this is what Muhammad Aymara, just after the 25th of January, was saying when he wrote the book about the, what he called, and he is understanding it as a revolution, saying, now our project should be a civil society. Yes, we have Islamic reference. And when you ask, so what is it? What is the difference which, between what you were calling Islamic State in the 40s and the 30s, in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, and what you are calling now uh, uh, an, uh, a civil state, once again, uh, and when uh, Morsi was invited here, when he was the president of the, the, uh, the, the party, Freedom of Justice, he came here, he gave a lecture. I was asked to ask him questions and to chair a meeting. I, I, and I wrote this in, in, in the book, Islam Awakening. I asked him six, six questions. This, the answer were exactly what I would have expected from somebody speaking about what was happening in the 40s. In the 50s, it's exactly the same. It's a Sharia, it's the, the legal framework. We are adapting. So you're adapting to what? What is the final project? What is your vision? It's very much the guardian of the Islamic reference on a defensive mode because we uh, uh, are protecting it and we are under, uh, uh, under danger or on danger in this situation. So, and this means that if you listen to some of the rhetoric on this, it's also that what you can get as a challenge is to go beyond something that we see today in Muslim-majority countries, and it's not only coming from the, the Salafi, it's uh, in the name of this adaptational uh, 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 reform, trying to get an understanding and how we deal with the civil society, changing uh, the words and, and, and accepting some of the, in a very pragmatic way, it's something that we can call sometimes populism in the way we are attracting the emotional uh, reality within the society by presenting uh, themselves as the guardian of the Islamic reference, but not really promoting and project or, or proposing a new, uh, a, new, uh, uh, a new vision for the society. The last point here, which is part of the challenge, is that uh, um, there is something which started political Islam at the beginning was understanding the state as a means for a transformation of the society and the liberating process. It ended up being the very goal of everything for political Islam. So the state is where we have succeeded. Ask, the, ask many of the Islamists in Muslim-majority countries, what is the measurement of success? And very often is to know, have we been in charge or not? Are we taking over or not? And this obsession of the state is reducing politics to the state power, which was not the case at the very beginning. So for example, power of counterpower, the power of the civil society, working within, being a counter. This was the discussion they had just after 20, the 25th of January in Egypt when two groups were uh, struggling about, do we have to go for the election or not? And it's as if they heard a call coming from the societies telling them, your responsibility is to be involved, and the, the, the success would have been to take over uh, uh, power. But uh, 
that's also something which is that we have to take into account. Look at what is happening in uh, in uh, in Morocco. What happened in uh, in Egypt? What happened in Tunisia? Very often, obsession with the state power and obsession with the recognition by the West. They might be very much against the West, but at the end, the measurement is to just prove that we can make it and we are able to uh, uh, run the country. But this is also with this obsession. You, you may know that a few weeks before he was, he was removed from uh, uh, power, uh, Morsi was told that uh, uh, he was going to, a coup was, uh, uh, was uh, in preparation, and he was absolute, absolutely convinced that the United States were supporting the whole project, and they were supporting him. This is what he repeated at least four times before it happened. But this perception is that we are safe as long as we are uh, or perceived as uh, accepted by the West with this obsession of power. But once again, uh, the, 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 the problem here is to look at what is happening and what happened. During what we call the Arab Spring, what the reality of everything that has happened, it was not an Arab Spring. By the way, it was very much nationalistic trends that were focusing on the country. Egyptians for Egypt, Tunisians for Tunisia, and Libyans for Libya, and Yemenites for, uh, uh, for, for Yemen. There were no South-South collaboration, nothing. It was very much nationalistic trend with no uh, uh, understanding or not knowing clear involvement in the region. And this is something which is important if you come back to the source that the reality is also a South-South collaboration Nothing of this, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's happening. Uh, and this is also in his book, Impossible State, while Halak is just saying, in fact, the very essence of getting it in on, on, at the nation state level is problematic with the Islamic uh, uh, references. But at the end, if you look at what is happening today, these are nationalistic, sometimes populist trends that are obsessed with power in the country and are using the Islamic reference in a very defensive mode. This is the summary of this first part. And these are challenges that are deep. And I want again to repeat that this has an impact on the Islamic uh, uh, reference. And this is also uh, completely at odds with all what we had at the end of the 19th century in the perception that you had with Muhammad uh, 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 Jamal al-Din al-Afghani, Muhammad Abdu, and uh, uh, as I said, Muhammad Iqbal, even Ali Shariati was saying, the only way to resist cannot be at the national level with a very defensive way. It has to be uh, liberation uh, uh, process. Having said that now, there are questions, and these are the translations of all the challenges that I see for political Islam today. The first, uh, once again, as there is a kind of obsession uh, towards the state, is really to ask the question, which type of state are you struggling for? What, is, what do you want exactly? What is the final goal of this beyond the slogans? While when you are saying in a clear way that it's a civil state with Islamic references, do you really mean, is this clear that we are talking about separation of authorities and how? So this is, something, this is a clear question. It doesn't mean that we have to come with our sometimes narrow understanding of secularists. We have to differentiate between secularization and models of secularization. The models are multiple, but the question remains. Are we talking here about a separation of authority, yes or no? Now, every country, and this is my position, every country has the right to find its model. It's not for us to impose. But the reality is, are we clear on the fact that whatever, you, whatever your religion, same rights and same duties for all the citizens? That's the starting point of the discussion. It's not clear. It's not even clear while they were saying at the same time, the Muslim Brotherhood were saying, a civil state, with Islamic references, at the same time, it was quite clear that the relationship within Egypt with the Coptic population was not uh, what it should have been from the very beginning. So there is something here which is slogans and sometimes practices and policies that are not always uh, uh, in tune. The second question is what 
is the, also the way I was interpreting what was happening in the Middle East. I never, uh, uh, I never bought this uh, idea that it was uh, uh, an Arab Spring and they were, we were witnessing the liberation of the people. Because my way of looking at what was happening, and this is what I wrote in a book that was completely distorted in the way it was presented to the people, saying, oh, he's thinking that everything is coming from the United States. No, this is not what I was saying. I was saying that I never bought that the United States of America and the European countries didn't know what was happening there. Anyone who is telling me now, we didn't know that they were trained, the cyber dissidents were involved and they were trained by, I, they were, they, this was known. It was as known for the Middle East that it was known for Eastern Europe. It was known in Eastern Europe, and we have facts now, even with the involvement in some uh, transnational cooperation. This is what I was saying. My, my point was that uh, I think that what was the driving force of all this was not political forces, was ec the economic equation in the region. And I think that we dismissed completely this. We were talking about democracy, democratization. If this was really about democratization, we should have started with some Gulf states, isn't it? This is where we need more freedom. Anyway, though, so the point here is really to come to an understanding that the economic factor, so now come to what is said by the <laughs> Islamist on this. Do you have an economic vision? Do you have a vision that is an alternative? Between those who are speaking about Islamic finance and Islamic economy, that we don't know what it is, except that it might, it might be more Islamization of the means without questioning the goals, which is trying to, as a, a scholar put it to me, it's a, a, a regulated capitalism that we want. This is the Islamic project. If you look at the reality of that discourse in economic terms, nothing is coming from the political uh, Islam of, uh, Islamists. It's, uh, uh, once again, you can keep on repeating, we are going to implement uh, zakat for all against speculation, and, uh, but at the end, the only real liberation in the Middle East is going to be a South-South collaboration. There is no other way. It's the, if, if, if the perception is only uh, Middle East and the West, it's not going to work. So what is the reality of the South-South? And if the struggle is a nationalistic struggle against your state and there is no economic collaboration, it's not going to find. And you can speak what, uh, 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 you can speak a lot and, and how, the, the, the way you want about the reality of, uh, of uh, democracy and freedom if there is no economic stability. Look at what is happening in Tunisia today. It's just a mess. What is happening today in Algeria? The, the reality of it is that if you don't, and by the way, anything that started with the uprisings was about socio-economic reasons. It has nothing to do with religion, nothing to do with secularism. These were economic, socio-economic reasons. So what is the input of, the, of political Islam today? Not so clear. And, and once again, except that uh, we, from where we are in the West, we differentiate the Islamists depending on the way they are dealing with the, the, the economic discourse as well. So when they are capitalists, we tend to avoid the term Islamist for them. So an Islamist capitalist is not really an Islamist. He's, he's, not, he's not so bad, as you know. That's the reality, that, that at the Gulf states, that's the reality. We don't talk about them because our economic uh, interests are helping us just to avoid using terms that could be pejorative in the way we are dealing with the countries. But once again, Gulf states or Egypt or uh, even Morocco today or Tunisia, if you look at the Islamist economic vision, what can you propose? What is the proposal and what is the vision, that's a challenge. And this is very important because I really think that there will be no liberation and no freedom and no democratization and no dignity uh, in these countries if we don't look seriously about the economic project, which type of resistance. And by the way, uh, um, this uh, globalized world is also uh, a world where uh, you have now uh, a diversity of uh, new uh, actors in the region. So I'm not uh, 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 praising the Chinese model. I'm not. But I think it's very important to understand that Chinese presence in the Middle East, Indian presence in the Middle East, the Turkish uh, uh, power today are new actors. And this is something which is very important. 
listen to what you said coming from political Islam. It's as if the only country that changed dramatically over the last 10 years, its strategy towards the South is Turkey. Opening over the last uh, uh, 10 years, almost 40 embassies and trying now to have an axe which is towards the South, which in fact started as a new strategy when the European Union uh, made it clear that uh, Turkey is not very much European, sadly. Anyway, this uh, uh, economic uh, project is not there, and we don't have anything which is uh, interesting. And between the two, the, the point one, which is uh, uh, which type of state, and this uh, economic vision is, of course, what I was saying, is the South-South relationship uh, with uh, other countries in the region, but also something which uh, uh, it's important with uh, the global South. And I think that uh, uh, we don't see anything coming as a resistant force uh, from southern countries uh, uh, and even Muslim-majority countries. The fourth, do, how much time do I still have? <laughs> hmm? Okay, that's very good. Um, I'm surprised with myself. I'm doing good, so I'm following my point. Uh, the, the, the fourth point, which is uh, uh, a, a main challenge also, is uh, the, the, the reality of the connection between the uh, uh, political Islam or Islamists, and once again, I'm talking here about legalists and reformists with the civil society. Because the civil society is is questioning something which is essential. I don't know if you heard about all this discussion in Tunisia, for example, within Nahda. When you speak about civil society, you speak about rights, but you have to speak about freedom, and you have to speak about institutions. What was coming out of all the discussion in Tunisia was it's freedom before Sharia. What does it mean? So before that, as I told you, if Sharia was perceived as on the defensive mode versus the West. Now you are changing the whole thing by saying we start with, with freedom. But freedom in that way, you have to be quite clear about which type of freedom are you talking about and, and, and which uh, freedom are you praising. In one of our discussions with the center in Qatar, we brought together in the field of politics scholars. It was just a mess between them about what, which type of freedom are you talking about and who is going to be the reference to limit this freedom? Because there should be a limit. So, so this discussion about the civil society, trusting the civil society, the trust, because there is no democracy, there is no trust for the civil society. Uh, that's something which, once again, it's not clear. And they, the answer that I got by many of them is to say, you know what, we know what civil society is. We have been working at the grassroots level. And it's true, no one can deny that uh, they got lots of support, popular support by the social work that they were doing, solidarity work. But once again, solidarity work, it's very easy when you are against, as a counterpower, to help the people, that's fine. But to come to power and to promote a civil society, starting with freedom, it's another story. And we saw this is not happening. And they are facing uh, uh, the reality of this civil society. Add to this all the social networks and this perception. The world is there. So you can't just come back to a very traditional way of dealing with this. So uh, the fifth point, which uh, um, it's, uh, it's important. And for me, this is where it has an impact on the contemporary Muslim mindset, is that what we are seeing with uh, the political Islam uh, organization or the, the, uh, the Islamist organizations of political Islam as a reality is very much that what they are constructing when it comes to the legal framework, when it comes to the, uh, the political system, and when it comes to the economic reference, is <laughs> very much based on this tension between Islam and the West. They keep on repeating that we don't care about the West and we don't like the West. But in fact, saying we are taking from the West what is going to suit us and, and, and we can do this. But at the end, if you try to read what was produced over the last uh, 15 years, coming from all the scholars that are uh, the references of the um, 
the, the Islamist groups and the Islamist organizations, uh, it's very much, once again, as I said, about uh, uh, resisting this uh, imperialism on the cultural, economic, or uh, political imperialism, or colonization, uh, as they are referring to. But if you come now and you try to, to get the goals, what are the final goals? What, in, in Islamic terms, is maqasid? What are the maqasid, the higher objective of your translation of your principles on the ground? What are you going to, what do you want to achieve? For example, if you look at uh, uh, education, anyone who is serious about anything that should be done in a Muslim majority country, you know that you have to start with education. We need a revolution in the educational systems in all the Arab world and the Muslim majority countries. What is brought to this? Because to do this, you need to get a sense of what are your goals, what do you want to achieve? So this is connected to your idea of freedom, of dignity, of justice. If you don't get this, you keep on saying, you know what, we are protecting our new generation by teaching Islam. But the way it's taught, it's exactly the problem. The problem is the way you teach. So is there something which is new in this educational revolution that is needed? Just show me where it is. No, it's just we learn the Quran, know the Hadith, come to the Islamic tradition, and then in a very defensive mode. So the political project has an impact on the educational project in a way which is clear. And in fact, it has an impact on everything which, which is important in today in uh, the Muslim majority countries, is how are we teaching this Islamic reference to make it a legitimate reference, but open and also able to come with a project which has goals and ends and objectives that are not only defensive and resisting to the West. So I, 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 I always say this to, to, you can see in all the discussion that you have with uh, Islamists that in fact, they like the West, but they don't like liking the West. And by the way, it's the way I'm talking here about Islamists, but in fact, it's, it's in the global south. That's the reality. We don't like liking uh, uh, the dominant in a way, uh, but what are we producing as something which is a model uh, coming from the West and what the uh, Islamists here are producing is problematic. Add to this something which is essential as a project and this is why you are assessing. If you reduce politics to state power, that's a problem. Politics has also to do with culture. It has to do with the language. It has to do with the creativity, with imagination. What is promoted there? It's as if it's not important. Anyone who is serious about liberating a country today, or liberating or reviving a civilization, you know that it has to do with culture, creativity, imagination, arts. What is this? Nothing. Nothing, or reactive, or <laughs> Islamic songs, Islamic movies, Islamic. So this qualification of Islamic is just showing that it's a reaction, it's not a proposition. That's the main challenge. And once again, be careful. These uh, elements are not only playing in the political field, it's playing everywhere now even with people who have nothing to do with a political project. It's the way you are nurturing your reference to Islam. And by the way, even here, because you don't have political Islam in the West, but you have exactly the same mindset, a reaction and a resistance and a way of dealing with the surrounding universe in, uh, of reference in a reactive uh, mode and with reactive dynamics. Two last points that I wanted to, 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 to highlight here. I'm sorry, it's a short lecture. There are many things that have, there are many books that I have, uh, uh, and I, there is a, a, an article that I wrote, and I was very much criticized by many in Muslim majority countries, which is beyond Islamism, calling for going beyond Islamism today because this, I think, it's critical. There are two things which are important. They are not coming with an answer. In fact, they are even nurturing the biggest division that you have now in the Middle East between Sunni and Shia. And that's, that's, that's very, very deep. When you see now scholars, Sunni scholars, or Shia scholars, Islamists, both of them, the way they talk to one about one another is just creating this fracture. 
having saying, for example, uh, uh, Yusuf al-Qardawi saying, the most dangerous people for the Sunni are the Shia. And you go on the other side, and you have the Sunni with the, 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 the Sunni supporting Saudi Arabia are the most dangerous people for the future of Muslims. And then you have this fracture. And this is also, this have an impact on any political project because it, mainly it's political. It's political. And then, and by the way, the Shia Sunni started with a political division. It's a political understanding. And then it became theological. And now it's becoming, again, political in the, this, uh, this way of nurturing to the point that even here in the UK or in the United States, you have fractured within the Muslim communities based exactly on this. So as I said, what is coming sometimes from uh, uh, the nature of political Islam has an impact on the ordinary Muslims in their daily life and the fact that uh, today uh, um, it's critical. Last thing, uh, which is once again uh, uh, a very important challenge. It has to do with violence and, and what we call terrorism. You know that there is no official institutionalized definition of terrorism. There is not. But there is violence and terrorism, that's fine, if you target innocent people and civilians. But we don't have a clear definition of that. And from where I am and studying this, I completely disagree and I think it's very dangerous listening to some scholars, intellectuals, or uh, uh, politicians, or political scientists putting all the Islamists together and saying at the end they are all violent and buying what, for example, was coming from uh, the list that was produced by the Emirates saying this is the list of all the terrorists on earth. That's very dangerous. That's very dangerous. Fortunately, I was not on. <laughs> but as sometimes some, some, some people are thinking that you think through your blood, you cannot go there. And why? Because there is a list which is confusing the whole thing and there is a political strategy about confusing everything here. And we very quickly, and I got this while talking to the British government, saying, you can't do this. You may disagree, you may resist, you may reject, but you cannot put all these people as terrorists in the same way. They are uh, legalists and they are violent. Now, one of the big uh, issues for, for the legalists and the reformists is to take a clear stand on violence, on targeting innocent people. So you have voices, it's quite clear, pretty, uh, uh, condemning Boko Haram, Daesh, and uh, uh, Al-Qaeda, and uh, ISIL. That's, that is there. Now, it's not enough. I think it's very important to be clear on what is legitimate, what is not, and how do you condemn things. With whom you agree or not, because at the end, if you are silent about, for example, literalism, and by the way, the literalist Salafi that is coming from Saudi Arabia, you can't go as far as to say what is coming from Saudi Arabia is in fact violence. That's not true. You can be Salafi and not uh, promoting violence. Now, the mindset can be used to promote violence and to be used uh, in a way, but that's not the same. Instrumentalizing a mindset, it's not per se condemning the mindset. I'm against any type of literalism, and I think it's very dangerous for the Muslim mindset, but I cannot go as far as to say Salafi mean, uh, means uh, 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 violence. So there is a, uh, uh, something which is expected, and from, for coming from the, uh, the Islamists to be clear about which type of diversity, what is the accepted diversity, and which is not accepted, and not only in a way which could be sometimes quite clear about uh, uh, who are the people you are ready to collaborate with. In Egypt, for example, the collaboration with Hezb al-Nur that was clearly a, a literalist was not clear. The Muslim Brotherhood were divided about do we have to go with them or not? Or how are we going to deal with the secular? And it was not always clear in Tunisia. Rashid Ghannouchi had some statements which were not clear about who are our allies in the whole thing. So at one point, the clarification on this and the clarification on violence, it's critical. I'm saying this while at the same time, I know that some are not happy when I'm saying, be careful, I don't agree with some of our statements here, or even in the Muslim majority countries, putting all the people in the same box. 
Al-Qaeda and Boko Haram and ISIL, their violence and their terrorists killing innocent people has to be condemned with no uh, condition. That's clear. But I'm sorry, I wouldn't go as far as to say political Islam coming from Hamas is exactly the same violence. They are resisting to an oppression, and I would say I disagree with the means, I disagree with the means they are using, but I understand that there is legitimate resistance to oppression. So to tell me, as sometimes it's difficult in Europe, say you have an ambiguous discourse. I cannot be more clearer than that. It's very clear. So legitimate resistance is legitimate resistance. Now you have to have ethical means to kill a civilian, a young uh, uh, Israeli citizen. This has to be condemned when there it's about innocence and when it's about civilians. But now resisting to occupation is by all standards something that we have to understand as being something which is different. So there is a difference here between this and that. So I would say here again, we have to be clear and the, the Islamic discourse uh, the Islamist discourse was not always clear about is it possible to go and to kill innocent people? Who are the innocent people? I was, in fact, uh, had a, a big discussion on this with Yusuf al-Qaradawi by saying, I disagree. We can't accept killing innocent people in Israel. Resisting army, it's one thing. Killing innocent people is another thing. So legitimate resistance should be based on legitimate means and the discourse here should be clear. So sometimes the discourse on this and the translation of this in uh, political terms is not clear. So having said that, my, my conclusion uh, is uh, quick. First, there are lots of challenges and uh, lots of questions, and I am very <laughs> critical. At the same time, what I'm saying is that we, from where we are when discussing this, we have no choice but to acknowledge the fact that there is a legitimate presence of political Islam in Muslim-majority countries. You cannot deny this. And you cannot deny this means it's not a question of accepting or not. It's a question of acknowledging the fact that they have popularity, legitimacy, and you have to deal with them. You have to deal with them. And uh, so any type of uh, demonization, or, for example, accepting now to the, to in our European Union, accepting the blockade of Gaza because they are run by people who are demonized is just uh, uh, not ac accepting the democratic process and, and demonizing people, and I think that this is wrong. At the same time, our silence with what is happening in Egypt, with people being in jail, that we have to be clear that if we are serious about democracy and equal dignity, we have to be clear on the fact that from where we are, if we want the political Islam and Islamists to move on and to have a, 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 an intellectual revolution is not by accepting that they are going to end in jail, because in jail they are nurturing exactly the same positions. It's not going to move. In jail, this is not where you are becoming more liberal or more open on your, that's, that's not, no, you are not. So there is something which is a vicious circle here and we are not helping our silence by accepting something. And this happened before the, the Arab Spring. We were silent about what was happening in, in Tunisia with Ben Ali. All our allies are dictatorships and we don't speak and we hope that the opponents are going to get out of this being liberal, open and loving us uh, us means us, the West. I know sometimes people are asking themselves, who is, the, who is this we that we are talking about? We, us, okay? So from where we are here, as a European, it's, it's very important to, to be clear, to be also consistent. Asking for consistency starts with being consistent ourselves. Dictators are dictators, and when they put uh, 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 political uh, opponents in jail, that's not acceptable, and we have to raise our voice. Uh, and then uh, the problem with political Islam, this is the second point, is that this is to reduce, as I said, uh, politics to uh, a reductive way and state power, and I think that this is where uh, the, the, there is a great deal of uh, re-evaluation and uh, even uh, the biggest challenge is there. And as I said, and I will to, to end with this, is all what I said today, I'm talking about political Islam and Islamism, but I'm aware 
that all the questions that I'm raising have an impact on the Muslim mind around the world. And in fact, this defensive mode, this reactive uh, uh, um, uh, dynamic, it's everywhere. And that's a problem, why? Because in fact, we tend to end with a legal framework, which is going to be protective. We end with a re uh, an understanding of Sharia, which is mainly based on the legal dimension. And in fact, what we need today, it's a philosophy of law. We need a philosophy of, a philosophy means a, vi a vision where it's beyond just the, uh, the defensive mode and the adaptational reform. Uh, a philosophy of man also, a philosophy of what should be done with men and women within the Muslim majority countries. And this is much more a vision that is uh, holistic, but based on a philosophy of law, not law resisting the West, but the philosophy of law promoting a project from within, which is not happening today with the Islamist rhetoric. It's not a project coming from within, it's resisting and uh, being the guardian of the tradition. And this is, once again, it's not only there. I'm talking about ordinary Muslims that are nurturing exactly the same mindset, which is the legal as a protection, the, 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 the cultural or the spiritual as a protection, not something which is a vision for the future and transforming the society for the better. So these are some of the points. Sorry for having been uh, a bit superficial of some of the points, but I, I don't have enough time just to, to say all what should be said on every point. Thank you.